We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid, part of Make Time for This on the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. Andrew, how are you doing? Good. It's almost Halloween here in uh, North Carolina. The, the fall leaves are falling. There's a chill in the air. I like to stand outside my house with a cup of coffee and, you know, Maybe put some bourbon in that coffee, crunch on the leaves as I take the dogs out and head inside and watch a spooky movie that, you know, makes me unable to sleep. So I'm doing well. This is my season. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd had playoff baseball to accompany me with uh, my spooky season. But you know what? The, the horror films are, are doing their job. Yeah, that's they're They're filling that gap in your in your life, in your heart right now. So all is well on that front. Last I time don't, we, I, I don't have my bourbon coffee here, but I do have green tea in a mug that is chipped from Beauty and the Beast. Though. You do, so, I can confirm. So this is, it helps me, you know, counterbalance the scaries. So that's what it does. Last time we talked about uh, Dario Argento and Jallo. And part of, I guess, the setup of that was in talking about the influence of Jallo and some of the groundwork it really set for what came later in American cinema. And in a lot of ways, some of the stuff that's still predominant when it comes to horror movies in Hollywood to this day. And at the end of the episode, I let y'all in on what we'll be doing this time. And that is, we are looking at the horror films of the 1960s. Uh, part of the reason for this is, it doesn't feel like the 60s gets talked about very often from a horror perspective which on the one hand is understandable because it doesn't have the volume of what came later, but it is the real kind of, it's the crossroads for the genre. It's the the place where you can pinpoint the shift that leads you to horrors becoming much more of a staple in the seventies. And then by the time the eighties rolls around being just kind of everywhere being as ubiquitous as any genre, uh, particularly within American cinema, but also, really right across the world and as we've probably talked about multiple times in the pod as you get to 
the present day um, with the state of movie going and kind of cinema at a very, very weird place. One of the few things that does consistently draw that you can guarantee there's a chance even for the smallest film to go out, pack out audiences, get people out in numbers is horror. So in looking at the 60s, I think we can really kind of get to some of the some of the progression of the genre and some of the breadcrumbs, I guess, which uh, ultimately lead us to films like The Exorcist and Don't Look Now and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the 70s, then leading you on from there. Because a lot of the filmmakers who throughout the 70s and 80s uh, went to kind of define the genre and even implement elements of horror within different genres. This is kind of the thing that, starts it off for them it's the films that they were watching either as teenagers or in the early 20s as the 60s was in full swing that showed something a little bit different to carry through and uh, beyond that so andrew to start off what was what was this experience like for you overall not in terms of quality or did you enjoy it but i gave you a list of films we kind of we talked through various different things that could make it here how much of what you ended up watching for this had you already seen had you already heard of is 60s horror something that was on your radar really in any way before this really only rosemary's baby and hitchcock was the only entry point i had um some of these films I had never even heard of probably not most of them, probably half of them, but something like Carnival of Souls, um, Blood and Black Lace, Eyes Without a Face, Peeping Tom, um, The Cremator, uh, The City of the Dead, and The Innocence, if I said that, are movies that I had not seen and never really heard of. Obviously, one that stands out as something that I had not seen but knew of existing was something like The Night of the Living Dead, just because that's something that literally spawned a genre that is still being battered into the ground today i mean um we'll talk about that a little later but it was just so it was so eye-opening to see that going back going back to see that uh compared to where we are today with like the traditional zombie film or tv show or whatever it may be and it's just like (laughs) they perfected it on one swing and everyone else has just been doing cheap imitations since but obviously when you curate me a list uh, for a project like this, you're not going to like wade through some of the bullshit and put bad films on here. But if like what you're saying about the volume in the sixties, wasn't quite to the level um, in the seventies or eighties, I'll say that f- for the high level films that we're talking about on this list, like they're operating at such a like high level of craft um and i mean honestly great acting and direction and storytelling all throughout i mean i i knew hitchcock is a filmmaker that has a lot of my favorite movies i knew i loved psycho and the birds hadn't seen them in a while they hold up tremendously i think they're both um sufficiently creepy building mystery and just uh telling a complete story from point a to point b that's very satisfying and rewarding when you get to the end and then obviously you've got what hitchcock's doing with the camera to manipulate the viewer's feelings and and really put in that sense of dread and unease or claustrophobia and a sense of like a scene where a bunch of birds are pecking at you um 
so I guess what this long-winded journey brings me to is didn't know a lot about non-Hitchcock horror movies in the 60s, and the good ones are really, really good. <laughs> yeah, and I guess first, first of all, I should clarify on the volume front. I mostly mean major productions, whether that's in mm. Hollywood or overseas. Um, one of the crucial things also with 60s horror that really builds up an extra dimension to this, an extra level of popularity is the way the genre evolved at all levels and on all fronts. So all the films we're going to talk about are independent films, deeply independent films, that part of the reason they're made the way they are, and in some cases are as scary or as shocking or as interesting as they are still to this day, is because they were made outside the studio system. Um, You've also, though, got layers beyond that. So Roger Corman, who is obviously one of the most influential B-movie filmmakers of all time, he really kind of hit his stride as a horror filmmaker throughout the early part of the 60s. Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, who's most famous for his spatter films, like real cult movies to this day. Again, someone in the 60s who came to the fore, a figure even like William Castle, um, who was making movies in the 50s, late 50s, but really probably goes on one of his most productive runs in the 60s so you've got that kind of as an undercurrent and you've got like a i don't know the foundation of an ecosystem that to this day is essential for horror horror of all the genres needs the different levels it needs stuff that today is very much kind of deep in the in the annals of a shutter where you're gonna have to kind of explore for a long time to find some of it 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that was your straight-to-video horror. I think a lot of that kind of also comes to the fore in the 60s below the surface. But what you get, it's not like horror wasn't around in film until the 1960s. That's very far from the case. Obviously, it was right at the center of always what worked for people, what brought audiences out, what was popular. Uh, The Universal monster movies are probably the best example of that. But I do think that is always a good kind of snapshot of what horror was. So you've got the universal monster movies. You've got monster movies more generally. Stuff that is very much in B-movie territory until you get to 1960, which, as I'll run through in a minute, when you get to 1960, there's this just jolt, this like bolt out of the blue where you're like, whoa, where did these movies come from? And it kind of feels like horror was never the same after that because you're moving away from, I don't know, um, very basic kind of gothic storytelling or stuff which was equivalent of IP, I guess, um, in the day in terms of franchise monster movies or kind of knockoff or spin-off versions of that. Like there was, there was so much of that that made up kind of the core of what horror would become that it was largely less horror cinema than it was like monster movies that was the genre up to a certain point and there are obviously a whole variety of reasons why films like the ones we're going to talk about but also not like that because there's a big difference when you get to the 70s when you get to the 80s of what you can do with horror the crucial component of that is censorship 
what you can make, what can actually be available for people to go and check out and what kind of then cultural impact it can have. How can you get it out to as many people as possible? And it's something you see, obviously, with free-spiritedness on the rise in the 60s. You can see the gradual loosening on that front and kind of mixed with this period where creativity was at an interesting juncture. You're coming out of the heyday of what movies have been to that point with the studio system. You're eight, nine, kind of the 15 years away from the real kind of breakthrough of the new wave in America and getting this entirely new idea of what studio movies can be. A lot of that is right kind of here at the forefront. So important to just consider that in terms of what horror was before the 60s came around and then what it came to be. I'm going to run through a timeline here that I've mapped out. This is far from conclusive or comprehensive. Um, It just takes in a lot of stuff that I've watched through for this experience. Um, Quite a few things that I haven't yet got to, but are very high on my list that will be viewed soon. And what you can see is that there is a pretty even spread. It's not like there's four or five movies every year. There are a couple of years in here, which are kind of heavyweight years where you get a lot um, and from all around the world at that too. But in going through this without having planned it out, I was like, oh, you know what? I can come up with something that I think is really notable or that I really liked. That's either straight horror or it could be a drama with, notable elements of horror horror kind of coming to the fore at some point or a sci-fi and that is not something that really could be said before this point um certainly with horror in the way that i'm using it now which is something that's reflective of what we imagine horror to be in 2022 um with the kind of the full width and breadth of that whether it is something like what eventually becomes slasher films, whether it's ghost movies, whether it's films about witches or zombies or serial killers, like whatever it might be, just that kind of range and something that, yeah, maybe the supernatural is there, but there's also a lot more willingness, I guess, to lean into the psychological and whether they're horror or psychological thriller, I think there's certainly a few things that really kind of start to push out here. Like Hitchcock is obviously vital on that front too, but it becomes something that's just such a staple of what we know of movies beyond this point. So it started in 1960. 1960, you get Psycho, which was a truly shocking experience for people at the time. Um, a real game-changing movie. You get Village of the Damned out of the UK, film John Carpenter remade many, many years later. Um, something that I guess a lot of people are probably familiar with in terms of just the idea. Um, essentially, the film opens and a bus has crashed and everyone on the bus has passed out. And they there's, we'll say, an invisible line on the ground that if anyone passes, they just collapse. Um, you fly planes overhead, the planes fall out of the sky. And eventually all of that subsides and all of the women in the village become pregnant and they all give birth to these children with like bleach blonde hair and strikingly blue eyes who uh, are pretty unusual, Andrew. They're pretty strange kids, which again kind of feels like something that has become a staple of 
some of the kind of tropes that you've seen in horror since. Um, City of the Dead film about Salem. I believe when you watch them, we'll maybe dive into that a little bit more in a, in a few minutes. But kind of playing on a lot of what was almost classic hammer horror. You've got Christopher Lee there. But it is doing something that's a little bit more bold. It's starting to push things a little bit further. Um, speaking of pushing things further, you've got Peeping Tom, which pushes things all the way further. One of the most controversial films of its time. Um, really, I mean, up until that point, it's hard to put your finger on a film that was just as directly kind of confronting sex and violence in the way that Peeping Tom does. And I guess the the most base and kind of nefarious instincts that any character could have in a movie. Uh, you get something like Eyes Without a Face out of France, a film that I'll dive into a little bit more detail as we go along. Um, and Black Sunday from Mario Bava. We talked briefly about Mario Bava last week. Um, essentially, the, the originator of Jalo Cinema, um, the person who came before Argento, and by the time he makes Blood and Black Lace in 1964, you've got something that looks like Argento's Jalo. Um, but Black Sunday before that is out of kind of a much more traditional tradition traditional tradition even uh but again you're starting to see something that's just a little bit more shocking for the time period there's more violence um there's a heavier implication of sex and sexuality there and it's making a film that just feels a lot more alive and interesting as a result uh in 1961 Film gets released that is probably the main reason why I went on a 60s horror binge and was inspired to do an episode like this, which is Jack Clayton's The Innocents. Um, uh, gothic horror, a kind of psychological horror that honestly might be the best crafted horror film I've ever seen. We'll really dive into it in some more detail too. I, I think it's a fascinating, fascinating film that I was not really all that aware of until very, very recently. And now I just want everyone possible to go and check out The Innocents. Yeah, you should. And I I could not remember which one of these films that you gave me was the one that was, oh, I just happened to, across this and it's great. Everyone needs to see it because on the weekends I drink a lot and sometimes I don't remember conversations we have. Uh, but so I watched this as organically as I could have based on just picking something next off your list, knowing I wouldn't get to everything. And I watch it. I love it. I go rate it in our app. And then I see just a collection of people that I follow, including you having the same reaction as me. So it's, I think it's a pretty special film, but we'll talk about it in a minute. I just want to, comment on like the like something so universal for anyone that sees it and then just for you to have come across it is pretty crazy yeah and that's what i mean one of the main reasons that i love film as much as i do is that any day you could come across a film like that that just completely blows you away but the more and more films you watch the more difficult that becomes too like it can always happen because a new film can always come along that does that 
but to find something from the past and just be like, oh, I don't even really know of this in a reputational sense. It's not. And to watch it and be like, my God, like, where is this being? Why is this not something that people are shouting from the rooftops about when they talk of horror cinema and how a horror film should be made specifically? Um, but we will talk some more about that. Another film that fits that bill is a film that honestly I was aware of, and it's shame on me because I took a long time to get around of it. It's Carnival of Souls, um, which again, just incredibly striking black and white cinematography, but just phenomenal understanding of how to frame kind of horrifying visions and ghoulish characters and to tap into a character's psyche at a time when doing it in this particular way to this particular effect was still not yet standard like it is today um a truly truly independent film again something that i was bowled over by uh, something that's not a horror whatever happened to baby jane robert aldrich's film um this is a deeply kind of disturbing deranged drama for the time um i again had for, for a long long time it was a film that i was like oh i must get around to watching whatever happened to baby jane and it's not a horror film it stars two of the most famous actresses of the era and of all time kind of pitted against each other famously they absolutely hated each other which played perfectly into the dynamic between their characters in the film I'm talking about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And they play sisters who live together and who are dealing with their own, I guess, combination of debilitating illnesses. Um, or yeah, yeah, that's that's probably a fair way of putting it. Um, the circumstances of which and how they came about in one case have had a great effect on the other, and really led them to the current point where they have one of the most toxic relationships I've ever seen siblings have on screen. Um, so not a horror film, but it it has just strikingly kind of scary images in it and ideas. It's playing with ideas that are a level of sinister that was not all that common before this time. And honestly, not that long before this wouldn't have wouldn't have passed muster with censors. You know, it would have been kicked back and you wouldn't be making films of that ilk um 1963 the birds comes along and again i think kind of changes the game in part because in a lot of ways i mean the birds is maybe one of the better examples of how do you modernize the traditional monster movie because that's that's what it is i mean you can certainly make a case that psycho is that too um but in sticking with something that is not humanized at all and is just specifically a creature birds is not what would have been at the top of anyone's list to uh to make that movie and it's a film that i remember even as a very young kid you hear about and it seems just completely i don't know ridiculous like it sounds laughable it's a movie you could easily describe to someone they think it's a joke but it's it's very very far from a joke to give the most obvious commentary you could possibly give on Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. It's just a marvel how effective it is, and um, for all of his gifts, even to build suspense around that story, to be able to make something that is just quite as kind of tense and action packed and gripping as The Birds is, is 
no no mean feat whatsoever um in 1963 another kind of very kind of critically acclaimed horror film of the decade came along which is the haunting uh, directed by robert wise is an adaptation of uh shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house which of course has more recently it's been adapted countless times over the years but more recently being adapted uh into a series on netflix by mike flanagan um very much playing with the same kind of gothic sensibilities of the innocence to me not as creatively not in a way that worked for me in the same way but that's not really criticism of a movie based on how how strong um i feel the innocence is and then in 1963 to kind of signal something that kind of kicks on from there Mario Bava, who mentioned to direct Black Sunday in 1960 and in 1964 would release Blood and Black Lace, he releases three films, three pretty important films for advancing Italian horror cinema, horror cinema worldwide. That's Black Sabbath, The Whip and the Daddy, and The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Um, Bava's just a really important figure for... I guess kind of the proliferation of horror and it becoming something that is very much global. It's interesting because for everything that Jallo did and for for everything the figures like Bava did in kind of establishing that and also being in before it, you think of horror today, you don't really think of Italy. It's it's something that strangely has been absent from Italian cinema or at least Italian cinema that has kind of broke out and played around the world more recently um, but very much at the forefront of it becoming what it is today without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, Blood and Black Lace in 1964 as I mentioned that is Bava again. You watched Blood and Black Lace right? Uh, I did. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Uh, probably even more than the uh, most of the Argento films I, I saw. Um, I thought it was a good like uh, a a good probably early version of the you know the who done it uh, and then the the everything is not what it seems and we trust no one um i thought it was and an all, all obviously with the giallo nature the the color and the uh the nature of that stood out as well also the blood and the black lace yeah also that um, yeah, the, the shared DNA, like I think that's that's a film that probably does land much better for you this week than it would have a week ago if you if you hadn't watched all those Argento films. Uh, like the the lineage there is really clear, and I think it's a much more focused distillation of that kind of stuff. Like it's getting in kind of before, as we talked about last week, Shallow Larcy becomes incoherent, and Argento really pushes style to the max. I think there's just a little bit more of a balance of blood and black lace. Also significant with 1964 is the start of really notable Japanese horror cinema. Um, Kwaidan is one of the most notable examples of that, um, directed by Masaki Kobayashi, uh, a collection of kind of folk tales and ghost stories is the best way of putting it and another film that comes out that year which is again tied to something which is not all that far removed from a lot of the kind of Japanese horror of the 60s into the 70s you get Onibaba uh, which kind of takes its root with some of the ideas around kind of 
fallen samurais um, and the idea of the spirits of fallen samurais haunting places or later films I think we'll mention where uh, those who have been victims of samurais their spirits haunt places so Japanese where I, I said in kind of modern horror sense we don't necessarily think of Italy as a powerhouse for horror we certainly do still think of Japan and that was something that has carried on through the decades since. And I think even more than anything kind of came to a head late 90s and into 2000s. Um, and Tripital does to this day, one of one of the kind of the most prolific uh, producers of really kind of intelligent horror film. We get to 65, you get Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which is a really, really strong psychological horror um, starring Catherine Deneuve. One where you're getting to see a lot of tools that I think really kind of come to be the bedrock again of slasher films, just in terms of the how the camera moves, how the camera captures space and how we tap into uh, Catherine Deneuve's kind of psyche. A really, really interesting I guess exercise in formalism. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot more alive than that, but it does establish a lot of the kind of the look and feel and ideas that do become pretty essential for horror beyond that. Um, also want to mention Otto Preminger's Bunny Lake is Missing, which is not a horror, but it has some sequences that get very close to it and are just very disorienting. So the principle Bunny Lake is Missing is that this American woman moves to the UK and she goes to pick up her daughter from school and her daughter is not there. And the child has just started in school. Nobody really knows her. And so nobody actually knows whether this daughter exists or if the woman has made up this bunny like figure. Um, the film evolves in very interesting, ultimately pretty disturbing ways from there with a brother figure who's, spending a lot of time with her in the UK too. Um, just a great, great premise. Really, really strong premise. Preminger is a great director. Um, but there are certainly some moments in that and some imagery that could have been taken another way. There's some moments in that film that I think are including some shots in a, a store for like uh, beat up and broken dolls where you've just got like these pretty terrifying dolls everywhere that if the score was playing with a different tone I think the whole movie becomes something much more akin to kind of straight horror um, in 1966 you get a couple of films that are playing with ideas that are horror-esque um, kind of calling back to Eyes Out of the Face which I mentioned in 1960 and we'll really dive into shortly but the two films I'm talking about are John Frankenheimer's Seconds and uh, the Japanese film The Face of Another. Both of these films playing with the idea of people assuming different identities um, by changing their face. And they're very much both more in the realm of sci-fi, but playing with a playing with kind of tone in a way that certainly speaks to 
the more blurred lines between what's horror and what's not horror that we've kind of dealt with ever since this point. And playing with horrifying ideas, outlandish ideas that lead to pretty dire circumstances too. Um, Face of Another in particular, directed by Hiroshi uh, Teshigahara, is very unnerving. Right from the off, the whole tone of it is very unnerving. Um, Seconds has more of a thriller vibe, as a lot of Frankenheimer movies do. But the face of another, like the two of them playing with very similar ideas, um, there's just something pretty unnerving there. Um, 1967, a film here that I watched on Criterion maybe two months ago, it was recently added, um, called Wait Until Dark, a Terrence Young directed film. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Terrence Young, Andrew. I don't know how aware of Terrence Young most people will be. It caught my eye because Terrence Young was um, the filmmaker who directed Dr. Known from Russia Will Love. So he was a director who essentially launched Bond. Uh, I saw he had this, what's essentially a home invasion film starring Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin, where Audrey Hepburn is blind and essentially having to fight off and deal with the threat of home invaders. Uh, Really, really strong film really really strong entertaining film with a lot of kind of home invasion ideas that i think you still see to this day even in films like nope or anything like that that kind of are not nope um, us that kind of stand up and continue to be used to this day um another film a russian film from 1967 which is using the same source material as uh mario baba's black sunday is v um very strange film with very creative cinematography and the use of color and the setup of the film is pretty interesting it's about a man who essentially um is forced to a priest i believe if i remember correctly who is forced to spend three nights locked in a church um with the corpse of this dead woman who many people suspect to be a witch um and the film unfolds in a variety of pretty insane ways from there ultimately ending in one of the bigger and more surprising finales of any film from this era and particularly of soviet cinema that i i could have expected but really really striking film and we're nearly there at the timeline 1968 you get to night of the living dead just completely groundbreaking game changer again deeply independent film dealing with wide variety of ideas tied to American society, tied to the Vietnam war, tied to class culture, um, setting up, I guess, a lot of what Romero would continue to explore into the next decade. And he gets to like consumerism and Dawn of the dead. You get Rosemary's baby from Polanski, a film we've talked about on this podcast before one of just the absolute seminal horror movies of all time. And you get Ingmar Bergman making Hour of the Wolf, which is Bergman's only real horror film. I mean, something like Persona has a lot of horror imagery in it, but that's 68. You get there just real, real heavy hitter, like really notable filmmakers that to this day are lauded all kind of diving in and making horror cinema that if you go back to what was being made in 59, but even if you go back to what was being made in 1960, it would have been very, very difficult to imagine. You've also got Kuroneko from Kaneto Shindo, 
um, from Japan, which is, again, that's the film I was alluding to earlier with um, the vengeful spirits of people who've kind of fallen at the hands of samurais. And lastly, um, you get a film that I guess I'll talk about here because I don't believe you got around to seeing it, but I would highly recommend it for everyone. A real curiosity. I, like, I don't, is it one of the earliest comedy horrors? And when I say comedy, it's some of the darkest comedy you're ever going to come across. It's The Cremator, which is a Czech film um, directed by Juraj Hertz. Um, Juraj Hertz, I believe, was a Holocaust survivor. And this is essentially a Holocaust film. Um, he was one of many notable figures who kind of arise out of the Czech New Wave. And the film is about a man, a pretty strange man, uh, a man who can't keep his hands off women who are not his wife, a man who is kind of full of his own self of sense or sense of self-importance, um, a man who just kind of walks around with a sinister grin on his face for a lot of the time early in the film, and a man who ultimately falls into uh falls into bed with the nazis and is all too happy to do so and feels like he is being empowered as a cremator and that he is freeing people's souls by cremating them and i mean uh, people can probably gather some of the ways that the storyline progresses from there and there are other things you won't amazingly well-performed film really striking and just dark like dark in a nasty way that kind of gets inside you where you're like there's something really sinister here um a very very strong film that is currently on criterion channel so i would recommend the cremator okay andrew that was a long monologue as quick as i could but still lengthy to try and just paint the picture of the 60s um what are they in terms of horror how did they become something different like is it just kind of narrowly located to oh this is what's happening in america no you've got soviet union you've got czech republic you've got japan italy france it's something where there is an evolution in the genre more broadly we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's dive into some of these films specifically. I'll let you pick. Where do you want to go first from films you've seen? We don't have to dive into all the films you've seen, but if there's any in particular that you really want to talk true and uh, that you think people maybe should check out if they haven't seen before. I think the one I'll, I'll <clears throat> excuse me, I'll go basic and say that Psycho is what you remember it to be if you've seen it a long time ago or you've heard about it being groundbreaking for what it was and i think it holds up incredibly on a rewatch and i think what it's doing like i said to you in the beginning the way i viewed the horror of this era is just really well told stories in a horror backdrop rather than something that has to check boxes to be a horror film i'd forgotten uh despite obviously spoiler alert this movie came out 60 years ago 62 years ago yeah so sorry but uh you know much is made and then this has been replicated duplicated in a way that it's not shocking anymore but uh the person we think is our protagonist gets murdered fairly early in the film but i don't i had almost forgotten how much character development we get with her uh prior to that scene so that by the time yeah that's the whole trick of the movie like that's yeah, the genius be- of it because they pack that into a pretty tight window and like we are genuinely invested on this woman on the run trying to uh get away with this you know not a bank robbery ro- robbing from her company she wasn't quite quitting she was loud quitting uh in this scenario <laughs> running off of forty thousand dollars but so we get all this character development. We get the the introduction to Norman Bates and we know there's something just a little off, but we don't know how much we don't know. We, it feels like something that's going to uncoil over the course of a two hour film. And then we get one of the most iconic scenes in film history, which is the, the shower stabbing scene uh, by uh, Norman Bates's mother we're led to believe it i mean this movie has two just like all-time reveals or moments in it that just leave a lasting image on you i can't imagine how people felt going into the cinema in 1960 to see psycho uh but i mean and then just to hone in on that scene i think it's filmed over a week uh to get everything exactly right and it's chaotic and it's um pairs with the score and the music so well and then it just sends the movie off into a completely different direction and uh, it's I, I don't know it's just psycho is just one of the more fully formed horror films ever one of the things that like kickstarted a slasher genre that can be repeated in varying degrees of success and something like x that we talked we might have talked about earlier in the year something like x doesn't happen if the texas chainsaw massacre doesn't happen if the texas chainsaw massacre doesn't happen if psycho isn't something that just kickstarts the genre and influences like to your point so many different filmmakers that would come after it and just having 
it's like uh it's like going to a pizza parlor and having a slice of cheese pizza and a coke on a hot summer day yeah it, it it's it's exactly what you that? expect What's yeah it's, it's exactly what you expect it to be and you can say oh like people make comments uh maybe trying to outsmart themselves by saying you know is 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 something really as good as it chalked up to be and psycho is that like i i think one of the more interesting things in look at the 60s as a decade for horror is you look at kind of how extreme rosemary's baby is like and how contemporary rosemary's baby is in terms of what it shows even how it depicts it the ideas of play and that comes eight years after Psycho. And I think it can only happen because Psycho just smashed through the barriers that were there. Um, the the code had not completely crumbled in terms of standards, but was just about there. Like this was r- exactly the right moment to be able to push the boat out and get away with it. And that's what Hitchcock did here. The movie was a smash number one like everywhere around the world where it wasn't banned and i say that as someone from a country where it was banned um i think a very weird cut supposedly was released within a couple of years um the original cut was i think unavailable in the uk until like the 80s um i saw on its wikipedia which i'm a little curious to this one it was unsighted but it could speak to something at the same time. There was a claim made on the Wikipedia that um, the uncut version was released on Blu-ray for the first time in 2020 by Universal Pictures, um, 60 years later. I'm dubious of that because I have it on Blu-ray from before 2020, and I feel like it's the uncut version. But there's so much of the film, and it's kind of shocking violence that is... Hitchcock just being smarter than everyone, the shower scene being the ultimate example where he couldn't have actual stabbing sounds. He couldn't really be focusing on the stabbing to such an extent that it would create issues with sensors everywhere. So what do you do? You, you create, you get Bernard Herrmann in to create stabbing sounds with strings um, and you use your score to create the effect to, I say stabbing sounds, like there's nothing about that sound that is a stabbing sound, except that is now universally a sound that people hear and they associate with stabbing. Um, that's what happens. You get probably the greatest composer of all time in to, to work on that. But it's essentially like Hitchcock using framing, editing, and score, like using the tools that are at your disposal as a filmmaker, picture and sound, I'm being like, how can I make this as terrifying as possible? How can I make the audience feel like they're seeing something that I'm not actually showing them? How can I put them in that position? How can I create terror like that? It's arguably never been done more successfully since. So the fact that one Hitchcock really broke the door down of like, oh, we can make stuff like this now um, is a big, big deal. And even bigger than that, people came out in droves like the audience voted with their wallets and were like yeah these are the kind of films we want to see we want to go out and see these films i mean the flip side (laughs) which i i don't feel quite as good about of your yeah we couldn't have had x without this or we couldn't have had 
Texas Chainsaw is probably that Netflix are not making a Jeffrey Dahmer series in 2022, if not for how successful Psycho was in 1960. That is the absolute downside, the very unfortunate uh, knock-on effect. But look, that's that's what happens. You, you birth a, a beautiful, terrible monster like Hitchcock did, and you create something that is kind of so big that yeah you're gonna have some really tough stuff in there but there's also room for for more brilliance to come so yeah probably no better place for us to really kind of dive into these films down with psycho uh what, what do you want to go to next uh first off we won't discuss this film in more detail but so i'll briefly run through it just because we're talking about hitchcock the birds as well just a very uh one of the things that I love about the birds, obviously it's a natural horror movie. The birds are literally attacking people. It's often horror films are uh, tied to darkness or the shadow of night. The birds is a horror film that's like takes place in completely, we're not the, the entire time, but a lot of daylight. Like we can see what's happening and there's nothing they can do about it. And I think that's, um, that was something that just added another element of creepiness just like the helplessness of the characters in this situation also in the birds um it's he i know the story by was not him either time but uh a lot of mommy issues in these horror films for uh for hitchcock coming up uh both well, of them. That's, that's i mean that's a hitchcock staple um it does doesn't just kind of stay confined to these movies but yeah for sure interesting gender roles all around i would say also just that's uh staples of Hitchcock. Yeah, if, if he was alive today, we could get him on Rogan's podcast and he could talk about his relationship with his mother. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, 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 probably we'll we'll do one more that's uh not the innocents real quick, since that's probably that's the main course of probably this process. But City of the Dead wasn't my favorite of this, but again, it's spinning off a genre the the witch genre and the obviously things a representation of salem and the witches in a coven getting revenge on what had happened to them in the past and just the them being these immortal beings we get christopher lee who is well, was he in his 20s or 30s at this point like I, he looks he somehow still looks 40 uh even if he wasn't that old i don't i don't know how old he was in lord of the rings so maybe uh he just always had that very distinguished face um this was a british uh production but they all spoke in american accents is that what i had as, as well correct, i thought it's, correct i thought it's a really good uh depiction of the audience knowing way more than the characters. It's it's like one of those horror movies where you, you, there's limited mystery because obviously you're seeing a witch being burned at the stake uh, in the beginning of the film, and then you could rec- recognize her as the innkeeper at this hotel at a certain point. So you you know what's going on. So it's it's one of those horror movies where you can be shouting at the screen. It's like no, don't don't go there. Leave the town. Why are, why are you here? And then just all the things that's doing to create something that will lead to other witch films in the future um the witch isn't the same kind of thing as this but it's you know they're they're on the same train tracks uh thought it was part of why i gave you this to watch is just for rosemary's baby coming at the other end of the decade like they share a lot of dna and 
that film is pushing the limits a little bit further and a little bit further. But the way a lot of the kind of final 30 minutes of Rosemary's Baby plays out is essentially the same as what happens um, in the City of the Dead. Just within a few years, you can do that. And the evolution of the ending in Rosemary's Baby compared to to what happens in the City of the Dead, where it's almost like there's it's almost like a moment of triumph whereas in rosemary's baby there's the ending is iconic as it's a moment of uh resignation to a reality uh and yeah. to your point that is like could you have done an ending like that when they put out the city of the dead without people just being like Absolutely what the, you, what you the could fuck not did i just watch far. no you yeah. couldn't but how quickly that changed is really fascinating but it is like they're the same you're dealing with different elements within the occult. Um, one very strictly about witches, and you know the other about Satan. But female character who kind of ends up in a certain place in a circle of people who all kind of lean on her manipulator to a point where the film takes its course from there. I, I think it's they they share a lot of DNA. I think in a way that's interesting that you've got to do different things with it, even just in terms of how certain storylines can be resolved on screen, how certain storylines earlier, only a few years are in the have to be resolved off screen. So I, I think it's a really, it's a good film. Like uh, I, it's not my favorite of this bunch by any means, but I think it's a very good film. That's also an interesting test case because it would have been pretty radical in a lot of ways for its time. And yet seven years later, it couldn't be any more tame in comparison to something that honestly like to look at and to think about like it seems like rosemary's baby should have been made 20 years later or 30 years that sounds much more natural than it came seven years later they uh they let lottie hang around way too long in that hotel she was clearly trying to subvert them from the beginning uh so some bad judgment from the witches there like i'm trying to even think the the difference like the distance in time is very close to, say, if we're like, oh, remember when Moonlight came out? Like, that's how people could have been when Rosemary's Baby came out about City of the Dead, which just is kind of wild to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to go one here. I'm going to go Eyes Without a Face, um, which I don't believe you got around to watching, but I, I will strongly encourage you to watch this on your own time, whenever that may be. can blame the um, Milwaukee Brewers for this one. <laughs> the Milwaukee Brewers did did kind of mess with our plans today i expected to get some more viewing done and the milwaukee brewers made us record a podcast about them instead they were feeling left out andrew um eyes on a face is a 1960 film from french director georges franjou um which is about a young woman who has I mean, say her face is being disfigured would be an understatement in a car accident. And her plastic surgeon father, who is dead set on ensuring she gets a face transplant to get to the bottom of this. And how do you just go about getting faces to fix other people's faces? Well, Andrew, um, if that involves like abducting young women and just, you know, drugging them and cutting their faces off to then put it on his daughter and see if it takes hold in a very experimental fashion. That is, that is what this particular surgeon is prepared to do. Um, it's a really kind of beautiful film, but it's also absolutely terrifying. 
that is really gnarly in a truly shocking way. Um, like we talk about the things that are implied in, say, Psycho in the same year. I mean, this is also a year where Peeping Tom is doing some very radical stuff in the UK with Michael Powell. But the sequence in Eyes of a Face where we actually watch the procedure take place, where someone's face is literally cut off, is more visceral and honestly more convincing than like most films I see try to do stuff like that today. Um, I'm what's the film which did it kind of creeped us both out, turned our stomach. The Brandon Cronenberg film that I'm now blanking on the name of, where like uh, humans were meat. You know, yeah, you know the film I'm, I'm talking about. I'm blanking on that as well. Keep talking. I'll look it up. Um, like there's there's elements of that where you can see, kind of, oh yeah, there is a progression there, but it just it doesn't it doesn't get to it. Um, antiviral. That's that's exactly it. This film, though, beyond like just a sequence like that being as shocking as it is because of how visceral it is, just the images are haunting. So while various kind of attempts to um, repair his daughter's face are unsuccessful, his daughter, we see her once briefly blurred without a mask, but she's wearing like this porcelain mask Um that honestly you can see everywhere, everywhere across the history of horror cinema and beyond. Um, John Carpenter cited it as the influence for Michael Myers' mask. I can think of something more recent even like, um, why am I blanking on the name of the last Bond movie? No No Time time to Die. You have the opening sequence of No Time to Die and the porcelain mask that Rami Malek's character has. like Something like that, you can even see the shared DNA. Um, Pedro Almodovar made the brilliant and kind of equally disgusting The Skin I Live In in 2011, which is not quite a remake of this film, but is not a million miles off that either. Um, There are more obvious examples too. Something like Face Off, I guess, has some... Some shared DNA, but as I mentioned too, then you get two films later in this decade, and uh, John Frankenheimer's Seconds and The Face of Another, which are also both playing with this idea of, you know, transplanting someone else's face onto your own or changing your identity. And what effect does that have on you? And is there something kind of intrinsically central to who we are in our face and does that change without that and will our body accept that or reject it a lot of really interesting ideas but eyes out of the face is just a truly like majestic film to look at with just some of the more haunting image and it's got this jangly kind of score which is not a horror score and it's got plenty of images which are kind of very like baroque fairy tale-esque um, but there are just these moments that are unimpeachable and that you can see all across horror cinema ever since. It's a true, true gem of a movie. Uh, also on Criterion Channel right now, I'm sure it's probably available in a movie in a whole parts of the world. Might be on Shudder in some places. Not not a hard movie to see. It's probably even on YouTube with subtitles. Uh, but Eyes Out of the Face is kind of essential for whether you're a horror fan or if you're just like a massive movie fan who wants to kind of work your way through the history of cinema, eyes out of face is a must. Where do you want to go next, Andrew? Night of the Living Dead? 
Uh, yeah, let's do it. This is your first time seeing Night of the Living Dead. Yes, low budget. Um, as low budget could get back then in terms of like earning your return as well, just like, like was another smash hit compared to what it was made for. Uh, landmark for what it was doing on screen at the time. Obviously, the uh, it led to Roger Ebert having a hissy fit about children being able to see it as a Saturday matinee. And uh, groundbreaking on a lot of areas, like you said, some of the um, political undertones and and things of that nature that it's doing throughout the film. The casting of Dwayne Jones uh, as an African-American uh, lead and basically our hero of the story. Um, I think it's just like a, a really entertaining and well-plotted film. You're dropped into a scenario with two characters going to visit their a departed relative. I think their dad's grave or whatever it was. And then everything just goes to hell and you're learning as the, the characters are learning what's going on. And we start to unpack more layers and layers uh, starts the, the genre that would be like a, a zombie movie. We don't get the walking dead without this, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll leave others to decide the crazies. I think a, a couple of years later than the remake of the crazies, which is worse than the crazies uh, in the two thousands. And uh, I think uh, it's, some of the devices that we'll see in uh, later films uh, where something like this is having uh, vast of night uh, stands out in my mind, or maybe mm-hmm. like the world of the worlds and things like that. Yeah. Where we world get, of worlds for sure. World of worlds we, for sure. Where we get the, the dueling focus on the characters at hand and them consuming the media that's revealing to them what they don't know. I think that's just uh, obviously something that was, expanded upon in the future and i think it, it really works well in this film even just from like a uh technical perspective what you're visualizing you're just like in the shit with them the whole time whether they're listening to the radio uh watching tv or confronting uh i think what are they called ghouls in this or something is that what they yes i believe next? it is ghouls um and then i think it um it dials into one of the more uh I think played upon aspects of the zombie or the pandemic or the like lost at sea, uh, like, like a lost type of thing where it's the real, the real issue when something like this happens is the people that aren't infected or that aren't the zombies trying to get out of the situation and how like they're turning on each other. Exactly. It's, it's a reflection of humanity and like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not someone that really liked the walking dead or is, like like a zombie movie fan but this just kind of blew me away from that standpoint because sometimes you know can it really be as like as legendary as it sets up to be and i think it just for all of those reasons really does i've not seen the remake well, not everybody i'm like i don't think i ever will like i've uh, maybe 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 i will at some point but it's it's not something um I think a lot about. I mean, the only thing going for the remake is Romero did write it, so I guess it's some reflection of Romero revisiting or advancing. I don't know. I've never, never felt the urge to, the need to, and I, I don't know if that will ever change. Uh, my question for you is, and I think this is one of the more interesting films ever made on this front, which is, it's kind of thought of as the first zombie film as we know zombie films now. 
do you think zombie films have advanced at all? Have have we found a way to do what this does as effectively to do anything new with it? Like that's always the thing that I find most striking. And I think about zombie media generally, not something I'm a massive fan of. I will say there's a hole in my zombie uh, viewing history, which I, I actually plan to rectify very, very, maybe right after we finish this. I I had to wait till I got through all my 60s homework of my own. I was setting myself and my Argento to get to it. I've never seen 28 Days Later, which is one of the more notable, I guess, recent examples that people did get on board with. But you think of 21st century zombie content. Sure, you've mentioned The Walking Dead, Shaun of the Dead, which obviously this is the film that it is and Dawn of the Dead after. Those two Romero films are what it is riffing uh, most clearly on. Uh, The Last of Us, the games, which will soon be a TV series. They're essentially zombie contents under a different name, under a slightly different guise, but zombie content too. I just think generally it's something of all these kind of subgenres. I don't know if anything has ever matched the original, the thing that launched it, which is very rare. Yeah, I mean, everything I've seen is just kind of like beat for beat the same things that this was covering. Um, I mean, even at the end, I think one of the things that, uh, I have not seen middle seasons. Uh, one of the things that the crazies and uh, Walking Dead set out to do is also tie in that uh, element of. Have you seen Have you seen um, Romero's Crazies? Nineteen seventy five. Yeah, or seventy. Um, it might be seventy three, maybe. But I've seen both Crazies because um, I saw the new one first, and then I went back and saw the other one. I've not seen them in probably eight to ten years though so i can't tell you how that holds up but in i I can't say that i can think of anything that's advanced it beyond what they they did there i mean obviously as technology advances you're gonna be able to make the uh the zombies look even more terrifying and the feeding on human flesh look even more ridiculous but even the the element of government distrust that kind of comes in at the end where it's like the people that are supposed to be saving us are ill-equipped to handle this situation. Uh, as we see a ragtag group of people not be able to spot a live person from a ghoul at this standpoint. Uh, so it's funny, it's funny that it kickstarts something and then you can't really say that we've evolved it to a level that meets it in, in the same spot. Um, you're making a face there. Am, am no, I no? Missing... It's unreal. It's unrelated. It's related okay. to our other podcast. You may be uh, on top of it too. Great. Uh, sounds like a plan. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm interested to see The Last of Us because I can't make it past like 30 minutes into that game without dying. So you know, I, I want to see what Pedro Pascal's got for me. Uh, yeah, that's that's upsetting me because i really wish you'd you'd be able to get the full experience of that um okay let's i I think there's two more i want to make sure we talk about here um and they for me are carnival of souls and the innocence um rosemary's baby we did we did just kind of pretty in-depth discussion it might be in our last year's horror episode we did right um so we can go back in the archives and might have been mid-covid but um well, people can go and check that out. It's either one or two years ago. It's back in the archive. If you search for our Halloween or horror-themed episodes, I think it was, if not my number one, it was my number two. 
um, favorite horror movie of all time. And I think you and myself and Ben Rauman, as we mentioned last week too, and we still are no closer to figuring out what year that was. Um, but we, we all kind of talked through some of our thoughts on Rosemary's Baby. Um, Carnival of Souls, I mentioned earlier, this is a film that I was aware of for a long time. Um, something that on Criterion Channel, I've had kind of staring me in the face multiple times back to Filmstruck. Similar with that when that existed, um, Criterion Channel's predecessor. It's always been there. I've I've picked up the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, and I've never watched it, and I don't know why. Um, no idea why. And for this exercise, I watched it, and five-star movie, just legitimate masterpiece. Again, very much in that Night of the Living Dead, just like revolutionary, truly independent filmmaking and that is a very much at the core beyond Hitchcock of like how does horror take flight in the 70s or in the 60s to become what it does then in the 70s a lot of that is driven by bold independent filmmaking that either developed cult followings or straight out became hits um I was really struck by Carnival of Souls and it's a striking film, one for how it looks on screen, for how it tells its particular story. But I, I think also for the kind of the background to the film itself, which is you get a figure like Herc Harvey and maybe this is part of why I'd never watched it before. Me being to my detriment in this case, something of an auteurist, I was never like, oh yeah, Herc Harvey. I know Carnival Souls and there's that other film and there's that other film and you know, let's watch it and then I might check out some of those other films too. Um, Carnival Souls is it. It is the only feature film that Herc Harvey ever made. He never made another feature. Um, he worked in a lot of kind of instructional filmmaking. Um, I believe in making like films for school and for educational purposes at some point. But in terms of going, making, making fiction feature films, Carnival of Souls is essentially it, um, which is mind-blowing and also just feels like such a waste that he was not someone who went on to make 10 to 20 films because if you can make this on a really minuscule budget, I think you could do just about anything. And to that same note, and um, the star of the film, I was completely just like enamored with Candace Hillegoss, who I had never heard of before, um was only in a handful of films in her career uh essentially it seems like gave up her acting career not too long after carnival of souls which was not a hit um it's it's kind of fandom redeveloped over time and she gave it up to marry the actor nicholas coster and while he kind of went and continued to work with his career her career came to an end um just a really magnetic performance such a striking beautiful woman too that you could easily see like being a leading lady of films of that time that that really bowled me over too i don't know if you experienced any of the same over there or if you've done any further reading on either of those figures to know that before we get into some plot detail no but i think the performance was the thing that stood out to me the most about this film because she has to do so much and she's playing this character as so many different things. We see her as so self-assured in what she's doing. And 
like even is something as subtle as like the approach she takes to being an organist at at a church and she's like yeah this is my job i'm a musician and you know it's nothing more than that or when she has to confidently um reject john or whatever his name is the creepy guy who won't leave her alone and then as she bounces back into that flirtatious zone where when it benefits her because of kind of the the specter hanging around her and then we she has to descend into madness because i I think this is a really good example of one of those films where there's one person who's experiencing the uh the horrors around her and everyone else is playing it straight and thinks she's crazy and yeah she's been gaslit that yeah exactly that descent into madness and how she portrays the balance of the confident and self-assured character that she is uh counterbalance with her as she's pushed to the limits and i i think it's just really well done and then i mean the 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 scenes at the uh at the kind of like the little carnival area and the, the dancing the the man with the white face or whatever it is and just those images of horror that are sprinkled throughout do a really great job of just keeping the viewer uneasy as you go through this scenario in this world that oftentimes is just very middle of the road. It's normal. This is a normal world. And then boom, something else uh, just like enters her headspace and sends her spiraling because she's the only one that's experiencing this. I think it's, it's, it's really tightly constructed too, like an 80 minute movie and just like glides right along. And then all of a sudden you reach this grand conclusion that, again something that's been repeated many times in years throughout and just really hits you like a gut punch at the end i think it's really well done and visually the the last image you get of that film or i don't think it's the last image but the striking image towards the end um really hits home and lands which i only realized afterwards i had seen before and that was at phoebe bridger's uh video for smoke signals which was a tribute to that and then in deuce with further reading you go to like in popular culture on wikipedia and you get like uh, Drake using scenes from it in the video for Knife Talk. You get Lana Del Rey using a line from it in one of her songs. So there's certainly it seems to have landed with musicians. We did talk about this film. I don't know if you remember this um, on the podcast previously, because there's a film I really, really loved, which was a modern remake of this. And I wonder, did that even click with you in watching it? It no. may not have, and you'll it will click when I say it. I do want to uh, say uh, October 30th, 2020, for anyone going through the archives, three-hour podcast, Halloween Spooktacular, our favorite horror movies. I found There it. we go. There's, there's lots more Halloween content there for you. Uh, the film is Christian Petzold's Yella, ah. uh, where, where Nina Haas is in a car accident at the start of the movie and then finds herself in a, an abusive relationship throughout. Like it, it, it is a remake of this film, and it's a pretty brilliant remake of the film, too. Um film i really really love so in actually getting to see this it was at once something that had an entirely different energy to it and the organ score in this film is really brilliant and kind of fully creates the eeriness it's like an eerie foreboding atmosphere that just perfectly fits the ghoulish images that we get throughout um films with no permits a lot of it shot covertly very much run and gone not only is this an example of something that is kind of 
in terms of subject matter is bold and an evolution of kind of the artistry that could go into horror filmmaking at this point. But it's also something that you only are able to make this film at this cost and in the way it was made because of technological advancements, because of uh, equipment getting cheaper and getting smaller and more compact and being able to set up easier in places um, where in the past you would not have had any chance of doing it. Just a truly, truly phenomenal movie. Um, the main story is that a woman survives a car accident, a lone survivor of a car accident, and is essentially dealing with the guilt of that and apparently being ha haunted by by ghosts, by ghoulish figures from that as she moves alone to a new city and tries to fit in and tries to get no people or get to know people around her. I guess the the specters of this um critical event of her past continue to haunt her and lead to a, a really bold, interesting conclusion that has a lot of just genuinely startling and disconcerting moments on the way. I really, really love Carnival Souls. Uh, shout out Nina Haas. And shout out always Nina Haas. Um, I am excited for Tar. Don't know if you're up on Tar yet. Nina Haas and Tar is something I'm very much looking forward to. Nomi Merlan in Tar as well. So um, those two with Kate Blanchett, that's certainly something to be excited for beyond the excitement I already have for seeing Todd Field's Tar. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future. Um, all right, The Innocents. So we touched on it earlier, a 1961 film directed by Jack Clayton. Once again, this probably speaks to the unfortunate way that I have worked my way through cinema history, focusing on directors, because I was not all that aware of Jack Clayton. And Jack Clayton was a moderately successful British director, um, both in some work for the BBC, in some early kind of British New Wave stuff. But the book on Jack Clayton seems to be that the man was a complete and utter perfectionist who could not have been more particular about what he did. And as a result, um, did not manage to make very many films, was maybe not always very easy to work with, and was kind of thought of as a genius from by a lot of people around him, a lot of people in the industry, but it was not something that could be put together all that often because he was so demanding of himself and because he had such a precise vision of how he wants to make films. Um, one of the things that I was surprised to read was um, the film that ultimately became Ridley Scott's Alien was originally to be directed by Jack Clayton. Jack Clayton ultimately turned it down after he was approached to do it, but that, that could have been a Jack Clayton film. And right through to, I think, the late 80s, he was still making films, but this is not a, a very kind of broad and disparate filmography. He didn't really make a whole lot. And I will be seeking out as much as I can, but there's a lot of it that kind of seems borderline lost, which is real pity, because you can see in The Innocence that meticulousness the attention to detail, just the, the really kind of groundbreaking use of lenses and the understanding of the frame, the use of deep focus and kind of all the tools that were implemented to play with this particular story. Um, the Innocence was shot in CinemaScope, so it looks very, very different to all the horror film of this era, pretty much. Um, and just very, very different to most horrors ever made. From 
multiple instances where you're getting kind of distortion with your lenses, you're getting interesting kind of perspective and point of view work to deep focus, allowing really striking kind of positioning and um, I guess haunting images throughout the frame, whether it's in the background, the foreground, really playing around with that. I just could not be more blown away by this film, which I also, just to say, like it is a gothic horror. It's a gothic old school ghost story horror, which to me is not something that is scary. Generally, you're not going to be scared by that. I think there are moments in this film that are legitimately pretty scary for a film from 1961, which for something that is not breaking out into kind of extreme violence or as direct a threat as you're going to see in a film like Psycho, I think is very, very striking. Um, Deborah Kerr's performance is fantastic once again, but it, it is a film that I just think the level of craft and artistry from Clayton, from cinematographer Freddie Francis, from Jack Clark, or from Jim Clark, sorry, who edited the film, really is on a level that has maybe never been replicated within the horror genre. Just most, most watch. Um, available on YouTube right now. That's how I saw it. That's how Andrew was seen it. So this is one that truly anyone can go and check out. And I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, the music as well, I think, creates yeah. that. Uh, and obviously, essential in any kind of horror film just creates that feeling of unease throughout the film. Um, the the shadows on the faces of the the images and the specters that we that we see. Uh, it reminded me. There's a film starring Nicole Kidman called The Others that I don't remember being very good. It's not it's not the same as this. It's got a growing reputation. It's supposedly oh. pretty pretty good. That's um, uh, I haven't seen it, but I I only added it to my own watch list recently. Like I must find that and get around to seeing it because it is well, supposed I, to be pretty interesting. Well, I saw it when I was ten, um, so I, I would happily do a rewatch with you if it's if it's any good. Um, or just even if it's not good, but uh, similar vibes there. I can tell that there was some inspiration different, uh, different to a degree because the story's not beat for beat the same. Um, again, I love the, the genre of the you're invited to this place that has a troubled thing in the past that you don't know about and you have to unpeel it as we go. Deborah Kerr, like you said, is great. And then again, uh, a, another great gut punch of an ending. And this one also adds to the creepiness as it as mm -hmm. as it lands at the very end. And it's just uh, great character work by Deborah Kerr the entire time as we just. I, I don't know, she's a, a she's a woman encased with concrete. And that's all, all I'll say about how she well, chooses she, to she approach is, the world. She is. <laughs> She is an interesting character. How she's portrayed is interesting and pretty groundbreaking too. Like there's clearly uh, some commentary and some exploration of like sexual repression there too at the heart of this film. It's not it's not there overtly at the front of the film, but it's a great example of kind of an early use of oh ghost story or horror. What can we how can we structure this to explore a certain kind of character? In this case, a certain kind of woman and kind of unpack the issues that exist in her life just masterpiece absolute masterpiece movie um, also i love uh i love the uncle who's just like number one rule is don't bother me about these little shitheads <laughs> it's a good rule to live by all right i think that pretty much does it so 
you enjoy doing this, right? You enjoy checking out these films, uh, probably more so than you expected too. I, you were upfront about it last week. I think even more so in hindsight, it probably comes across that Argento was maybe a little bit more of a slog than usual on this front. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely fair. And these breezed by. Um, and I, I mean, I so I won't I won't say that this is a, a, a usual thing for me when we go through back in time and exposed me to uh different cinema argento was kind of an outlier there um actually because uh i mean we when we've done shock to me or Godar or things like that it's always really landed with me and after argento i was like maybe horror is where my disconnect is and if like this is going to be another example of me just being like yeah, I get it, but you know, not for me. Can't see myself rewatching this. Obviously, Hitchcock I knew going in was not going to be an issue, even though I think Psycho and the Birds would probably be a distant third and fourth to the Hitchcock I've rewatched, and that Rear Window and Vertigo would be Vertigo, much higher right. h- higher on that list. Um, but those were still great. The Innocence, obviously, for all the things we just spent talking about, it was just a really like well-crafted film carnival of souls um that leading performance stands out there rosemary's baby obviously one of the best films of all time um and even something like city of the dead and blood and black lace which is not something you know i would typically come across on an app and and want to watch on a thursday night um the two films for what they are and what they were doing at the time in particular like you were saying for city the city of the dead and doing an exercise like this where you start at point A and you can draw through lines to things that are made today or made later in the 60s or made in the 70s or made in the 80s, it's just a really uh, rewarding experience. So uh, Argento, respect. This was more love. <laughs> That's okay. And I, I was largely coming from that point with Argento too. I think it's something I mentioned last week. Like I love Suspiria. I don't know if I love Argento beyond that, but I wanted to do that episode for many reasons, as we talked about last week, but one being, I do think you can see what horror becomes from people who saw that. They don't necessarily take all of it, which is ultimately, I think, a good thing, but they take key elements of it. They're like, okay, I like that. What if I, what if I take my vision and I kind of put it through the lens of what an Argento film looks like? Like, that is in part how you get something like Halloween. But as I mentioned, like Michael Myers mask comes from eyes without a face. So all of these things are kind of in conversation and just the changes that in a 10, 15 year spell, this genre just grows legs of its own in a way that wasn't there before in a way that gives way to originality where everything before that was very kind of predictable. It's like, okay, what type of monster like are we going to create here? Um, so that's kind of as a pair that's largely what I wanted to get out of this I want us to hopefully watch a lot of films that we liked and for people to go on that journey with us but also to uh, to lay lay the groundwork for how horror got to be what it was who knows maybe we're doing this podcast for multiple more years and we'll have other Halloweens to do things and maybe next year it's like 70s horror which is a lot more upfront and and uh, just kind of classic after classic after classic you can lead with. Um, but I, I do think essential to it is what happens in the 60s, how things change. All right, we're doing more horror next time. It'll be just after Halloween, but early next week, we are going to talk about one of the 
kind of smash hit sensation horror movies of the year so far, which is Barbarian. Um, it is out in theaters in this part of the world now. It is on HBO Max throughout North America. So if you haven't seen Barbarian already, make sure to do so. We're going to talk through it, and I'm <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. I think it's a very, very fun movie to talk about. Uh, it's just it's set up in interesting ways. I think there's some things we'll revisit that came up today. You said something earlier, and I was like, oh, that's exactly something that's at work in Barbarian, and I look forward to Andrew seeing it. We can talk about it. So that's up next time to make sure you never miss an episode to hear that and everything else we've got going on, both movies and other pop culture. Subscribe to Make Time for This, wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out the rest of the Eurostep Podcast Network shows on the main Eurostep Podcast Network feed. You can get the Eurostep with Ty Winters and Rowan Cotty, Win in Six with myself and Jordan Tresky, both, both shows covering all things Milwaukee books. Books are up and running with a perfect start to the NBA season. 3 and 0, everything's rosy. Cruising for a bruising. You get all things Milwaukee Brewers. Andrew and I recorded there earlier today. As we record now, more news has really emerged on that front. So stuff we didn't have earlier. Um, but I we've been jolted back from our, our slumber, from our hibernation. So for all things Milwaukee Brewers, cruising for a bruising, we'll have more there next week. I've seen uh a tweet I need to read, even though this isn't a Brewers podcast, though. And I think we've we've figured out what needs to happen this offseason, Adam. Don't, don't. Let uh, me land this play. Tell me, tell me <laughs> off air. Let me land this play. Uh, and also, <laughs> we've got Talk of the Tundra, our Green Bay Packers podcast, hosted by Duomac himself and Jordan Tresky. They're Adam. not off to a perfect start. They are not off to a perfect start. Um, Duomac is, of course. Um, yes. The Green, Bay, the Green Bay Packers are not. The king. Yeah, so... If you want to see how things fare for the Packers, hopefully better things lie ahead against the Bills. There'll be more there this weekend, but to look ahead to that game and check out the latest episode with Dean Mac and Jordan. All right, that does it for, for everything. We're on Twitter at Make Time for This. I'm at Adam McGee 11, Andrew's at AC Snide. Until the next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com